study for tonight. We're talking about foundational beliefs. Of course, we have just uh, seen a wonderful example of a man whose life has been founded on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, because of that, uh, he has made all the difference in the world. Uh, he's opposed, Tim is, and as are each of us, named by the name of the Lord Jesus, by the adversary who opposes us. And we began to speak about Satan some weeks ago uh, to try to define his nature and characteristics. And then we spoke not only about who he is, but about what he does. And I, I tried to sum up what he does with reference to us. And he tries to get us to be like him, essentially. And he decided to strike out independently of the Most High God. And that's what he wants for us. So fundamentally, uh, that is the direction of satanic temptation to draw us all into a sense of personal autonomy, to be our own gods, to be self-sufficient, to be uh, self-satisfying, to be self-reliant, to be self-governing. And we've tried it. Uh, Tim has. I have. We all have and have found it wanting. We have found out we cannot be masters of our own lives and destinies and that it's better to yield to and to submit to the most high God who really is in control. Anyway, that's the direction of satanic temptation with regard to us. But since he's the adversary, he's the adversary across the board. So he's not just our adversary. Of course, you know, he's the adversary of the Lord Jesus Christ as well, which leads to this question. And I would like for us to take a look at it tonight. What does he, Satan, do then to the Lord? We found out what he does to us and is continuing to do. What does he do to the Lord? That's what I'd like for us to talk about tonight. And it's this. When the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth, from that point on, Satan did everything he possibly could to keep him from dying well, not actually to keep him from dying, more specifically to keep him from dying for our sins. And so that's what he did to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he did so in a number of horrible ways. There was a king of Israel, for instance, you know of him, Herod the Great, a great architect and also greatly insane. And so he found out uh, through his uh, chain and network that there was a baby to be born in Bethlehem or Bethlehem, you know, the city of David, and that this baby was to be the prophesied king of the Jews. Well, this upset Herod greatly. He didn't want the competition. He didn't want to share his throne with anybody else and so he wanted the baby to be born there murdered well God knew about this you know because the most high is omniscient and so the most high God intervened by sending one of his ministering spirits an angel uh, to warn Joseph in uh, a dream and the, the angel told Joseph I want you to take the baby and flee uh, into Egypt, and that's what he did. And Herod, in the meantime, ordered the murder of every male baby, you know about this, uh, under the age of two in Bethlehem. Folks, Satan was behind that attempt, don't you see? 
to keep the Lord Jesus Christ from dying for us. He did everything he could to keep Jesus from dying for our sins. Well, that's not all. There was a time when the Lord Jesus was engaged in conversation with some of his closest circle of followers, his disciples, and he informed them, as he did on more than one occasion, that it would be his lot in life to go up to Jerusalem there to suffer greatly and then ultimately to die. And in the course of informing his devoted followers of this, Peter it was who stood up, spoke first. This was his personality, you know. And he said, no way, Lord, this is not going to happen to you. And do you remember how the Lord responded? He said, get thee behind me, Peter. Ah, you got it. Because the Lord Jesus, who is divinity in the form of man, is also all-knowing. And he knew that Satan was inspiring this. Satan was the one who was speaking through Peter. He knew Satan wanted him to avoid the cross. And so that in uh, just a few words is the direction of satanic temptation with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ. There was another occasion when one of the Lord's followers betrayed him. Do you remember what his name was? Yeah, it was Judas. And we are told that Satan was the one who entered into him. And so you could see behind the scenes indirectly it's Satan orchestrating events in keeping with his murderous intentions to keep the Lord Jesus from his substitutionary death for you and I. Satan is behind all these efforts to keep Christ from the cross as our substitute. Now those are all indirect attacks lodged against the Savior by uh, Satan, but I want to share with you a very head-on, face-to-face a direct confrontation. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 4. And here's how it begins in verse 1. It says, Then Jesus, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, by the Spirit, uh, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's what it says. So it begins then, which is a time indicator, meaning something preceded it. Something happened then. What was it that preceded it? Well, if you have a chance, look back on Matthew chapter 3, and you'll see it was the baptism of the Lord himself. What a glorious scene it must have been. I can't think of a more serene and wonderful environment. The whole trinity of God is involved, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And there he is, baptized in the uh, Jordan River, not for the remission of sins, oh no, but to fulfill all the requirements of the law for you and for I. What a scene that was. And then it says, then he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. There, during his baptism, uh, the very Spirit of God manifested himself in this marvelous form of a gentle uh, dove uh, seen descending from heaven. And now that same Spirit, that same Spirit, the very Spirit of Almighty God, is the one who leads God's Son, the Lord Jesus, in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Do you see it as I do? See, he was led up by the, it doesn't say spirit of Satan. Oh, no. He, the son, was led up by the very spirit of God to be tempted by the devil, which leads to this question. I hope you ask it when you read the scriptures. This question, why? Why? 
Would God the Father allow God the Spirit to lead God the Son into the Judean wilderness? They went from this marvelous pastoral setting in the northern part of Israel, the Galilee. I have been there. It is beautiful. Into this horrible, dry, arid desert. This was all done on the initiative of the very Spirit of God. Why? I think this is the answer to demonstrate the perfect submission, the sinlessly perfect submission of the Son to the Father's will. This one, this Jesus alone can be the Savior from sin because this one alone is sinlessly perfect. You see it? That's why he was led to be tempted uh, by the Spirit of God to be tempted by Satan to show us he would not yield, he would do the Father's will. And there is no one else, therefore, who qualifies as the Savior. It takes a sinlessly perfect one to die as our substitute for sin. There is that one, but he's the one and only uh, Jesus, uh, God's Son. So here's what happens Next, in Matthew 4, the next few verses, 2 and 3. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Wow, what a contrast to some others who were tempted, Adam and Eve. He in the desert, they in a lush garden. He hungry, they with food all around them. Well, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, it says he became hungry. Yes, he's God. Yes, he's God, fully God, but at the same time, fully man, though without sin. Yes, he got hungry. He experienced hunger. And the tempter came. That's Satan. And the tempter came and said to him, you see, it's a direct confrontation. If you are, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. <laughs> if you are the son of God. And yet prior to this, in the chapter immediately preceding it, chapter 3, verse 17, the Father made this pronouncement at the baptism of the Son. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Satan read the Bible. He knows the Word of God. God said, this is my beloved Son. Satan said, if you are the Son. You see what he's doing? Just as he did in the garden. His every attempt is a design to cause us to call into question the reliability of the Word of God, which is why a million years ago, when we started this series, we started with the Bible as our foundation stone. When it goes, we got nothing but opinions and speculations. <laughs> with it, reliable, inerrant, inspired, the authoritative Word of God, we can decide all matters of faith and practice. It is the final word. Not what I think, not what you think. Not what I feel, not what you feel. Not what I like, not what you like. And surely not what Satan says. God said, this is my son. Satan said, if you are the son of God, make stones. And they're all around the Lord Jesus, if you can envision it now, in the Judean wilderness. It's a very stony area. Satan said, make all those stones bread. So what is he really getting at? I think it's this. Satan wants the Lord to assert his independence from God. You see, he struck out 
independent of the Most High. That's what he wants us to do. Do your own thing. Be the master of your own destiny. And that's what he wants even the Lord Jesus to do. Assert your independence from God. So he's in essence, he's, he wants the Lord Jesus to feed himself. That's what he's doing. He wants him to meet his own needs. He's essentially saying to him, you don't need the Father. Take care of yourself. You can do it. You do not need to depend upon him. You do not need to look to him for the satisfaction of your hunger, for the satisfaction of your needs. You can produce your own food. You can meet your own needs. Why don't you do it? You can be independent of God. See it? Now, that would be no temptation for you and I, this particular one, because we couldn't pull it off. But the Lord Jesus could. Just like that. He could have turned the stones into bread. Remember, he fasted for a long time. It's not just missing breakfast. Good night, folks. That's a lot of not eating time. He's really, really hungry. He had the capacity to meet his own needs and to satisfy his own hunger, and yet he did not do so. Why? Because he knew that was not the will of his father. He knew at this time the will of his father was not that he would satisfy his own hunger, but that he would remain hungry. Yeah, that was the will of his father. And so he said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, the Lord Jesus did, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And in so doing... He calls upon a passage of Scripture, uh, which you can locate in Deuteronomy, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And the whole context of Deuteronomy has to do with Israel's wilderness experience. He invokes that particular passage of Scripture. He quotes it accurately, and he applies it obediently to two things we didn't see happen in the Garden of Eden, did we? Eve misquoted the Word of God, and then uh, neither she nor Adam uh, submitted to it and applied it obediently anyway. And so he invokes Deuteronomy chapter 8, applying it here, and the point of it all is essentially uh, to say it is far better to obey the Word of God than even to satisfy your own hunger. You don't live by physical food alone. You don't live by satisfaction of fleshly appetites alone. You see it? If it feels good, that doesn't mean you should do it if doing it is contrary to the Word of God. What you really live by is spiritual nourishment. The Lord Jesus said, I would rather go physically hungry than be spiritually at odds, empty, of the Father's closeness and communion and intimacy. You see it? So that's how he responded. But the devil keeps coming. Just know this about Satan. Until it's over, he keeps coming. Matthew chapter 4, verse 5. And then the devil took him into the holy city. Do you know what the name of that is? Yeah, it's Jerusalem. Absolutely. It's not Pearland. It's not. It's just... <laughs> It's the holy city. And he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. It's Jerusalem. And the pinnacle is the highest point uh, of, the, uh, of the temple area. You can visit it today. It's the southeast corner. And you can stand up there. It's three, four, I don't know, maybe 500 feet up in the air. 
And you look out to the side and there's the Kidron Valley below. That's where Satan took him to that highest spot at the temple precincts. It was the highest point. And, and, and Satan said, uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 6, Satan said to him, If you are the Son of God, here he goes again, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they'll bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, what's all that all about? Um, the Jewish people of the day had a belief with regard to the Messiah. The Jewish people of the day believed that the Messiah would come. And they believed that when he came, he would appear in the sky. And that from the sky, he would descend, come down to the temple area. I, I believe based on that prevailing Jewish belief in the day, Satan said what he did. Which in essence was to tempt the Lord this way. Jesus? Why don't you do what the people already expect the Messiah to do? Jump. Jump. Show them who you are. If you are the Messiah, since they're expecting the Messiah, jump. Descend from the sky to the temple precincts. Prove your Messiahship to them. By the way, I don't have to remind you that if you did, your father would take care of you anyway, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he send angels to protect you from injury anyway? Why don't you therefore declare your messiahship now? That's the direction of the temptation. Now, folks, for Jesus to do that would not have been the father's will. For Jesus to declare his Messiahship in this way at this time would not have been the Father's will. And so the Lord responded in Matthew chapter 4, verse 7, It is written, that's the second time he said that, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now here he invokes a passage from Deuteronomy 6. And he quotes it accurately and applies it obediently. Again, unlike Adam and Eve. And he responds to Satan's temptation essentially by saying, No, this is not the Father's will. But Satan keeps coming. Matthew 4, 8 and 9. Again, this would be the third time. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Now, that might surprise you a little bit that Satan has the authority even to make that offer. Do not be surprised. Do you know he's the ruler of this world? They don't want to shake you up or anything, but he's been cast down to earth, folks. He's not been ultimately dealt with. And so he's dealing with us here. Behind every madman, including the president of Iran, is Satan. 
in a few weeks, we'll talk about how to deal with Satan. What do we do to be overcomers? And one of the things we do is we look past flesh and blood bad guys because our battle is not against flesh and blood, is it? It's against this, the powers and principalities of the air and the spiritual forces of wickedness at work in this dark world. Oh, don't worry. Ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ will rule and reign all kingdoms of the world, but for a spell. Satan is allowed to work his evil wiles, and he is. And so he makes this offer to the Lord Jesus Christ of the glory of all the kingdoms of the world. And so in essence, he is saying, I know it is your Father's will. I know it is your Father's design for you, Jesus, to rule the world. I know it. I, however, can make this happen for you now. All you have to do is worship me instead of the Most High God. You see it? And Jesus said in Matthew 4, verse 10, Go, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so for the third time, the Lord Jesus calls upon the written word of God. Do you notice it doesn't say, and God said, which is a mouthful. Please don't let me minimize that, and God said. But it specifically says it is written. Why? Because in so doing, the Lord is verifying and substantiating the written word of God. My dear folks, when you sit out there with the Bible in your hands, you have the very word of God. I know this on good authority. The Lord Jesus called attention to it as his authority. If it's good enough for him, it ought to be good enough for you and me, and I don't care what the liberal critics of it say. I went right to the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus, to find out what his response is to the written word. It is written, he said, and that's how he defeated the evil one, don't you see? Not just by quoting it, by quoting it, and then by applying to it. It's like a two-way street here, right? You can't just know it. You sort of have to do it, too. And, and, and so that's what happens here. Three times. Now, in this case, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Three times the Lord is tempted. Three times he relies on the written word of God to resist the temptation. And in all three cases, you might find this interesting, he draws on God's word from the same book, Deuteronomy. So what does this mean? We should ignore all the other books of the Bible since this seemed to be a favorite of the Lord? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Don't miss what's going on. In all three cases in which he invokes the word of God from Deuteronomy, the context is this. Israel freed from bondage in Egypt after 400 plus years, making her way into the land of promise, but spending about 40 years wandering around aimlessly and disobediently in her wilderness. When she was tempted in her wilderness, she failed. And so the Lord Jesus is showing us she should have lived by these 
is the perfect Israelite. God intended Israel to be the means of redemption. He wanted Israel to be the ones who glorify him on the earth. And do not get me wrong, he's not finished with Israel yet. He has not replaced Israel. Perish the thought. But where Israel failed, God raised up the perfect Israelite, the Lord Jesus Christ, who showed us in his wilderness a temptation, perfect submission to the will of the Father. And therefore, don't you see, Israel can't save us. But the perfect Israelite, the Lord Jesus, can and will if you take him by faith into your life, as Tim has done and others of us over here. So, what's Jesus up to in all this? Excuse me, what is Satan up to in all this? His goal is simply to tempt the Lord Jesus to come into his glory without the suffering of the cross. You get it? That's what he's doing. Satan offered him the crown without the cross. And sensual, superficial, carnal, Corinthian Christianity today does the same thing. Formulas for your health and formulas for your success and formulas for your prosperity and Santa Claus religion. No. The normal Christian life, first the cross, then the crown. You and I are more easily tempted to avoid our cross <laughs> than was the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is what Satan tried to do. Offer him the crown without the cross. Do it yourself, Jesus. Come into your kingdom now. Do it without the horrors of the cross. It surely can't be God's will for his only begotten son to suffer. Surely that can't be God's will. It is unnecessary. The cross can be dispensed with. It's irrelevant. Leave it out, Lord Jesus. You don't need it. And if he listened, and if he bypassed the cross, if it was left out, if the Lord Jesus refused to take his place on the cross in our place, where would you be? Where would I be? Think about it. Where would we be? If the Lord Jesus was successfully tempted to bypass the cross, where would we be? Think about it all the time so as not to take for granted what he in fact has done. In the old rugged cross, Stained with blood, so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For it was on that old cross, Jesus suffered and died to pardon 
and sanctify me and you. Where would we be without the cross? I'll tell you where. Unforgiven. Unpardoned. Unadopted. Unclean. Under eternal condemnation. Therefore, I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. And I'll cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Let's sing it together. Let's sing this. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange not yet but someday for a crown folks Satan you know was unsuccessful in tempting the Lord to avoid the cross and so he relentlessly attacks the message of the cross I put it up every single Wednesday night in our face. It cannot be dispensed with. It cannot be bypassed. So since he, Satan couldn't successfully tempt the Lord Jesus to avoid it, he relentlessly attacks the message of the cross. He seeks to persuade people it isn't necessary at all. It's brutal and it's savage and it's uncivilized and it's grotesque. And yes, and so are your unholinesses in the eyes of an unapproachably holy God. It is necessary. He's holy. He must judge all of our unholinesses. He must judge our sin. And so your sin, my sin, is either paid for by Christ on the cross or you will pay for it yourself throughout eternity. But there is no need. You see, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. That's called victory in Jesus. And in the cross he crushed the evil one <laughs> under his feet. And our job is to reckon it all to be true Stand firm and not give up the ground. And should the Lord allow us in a few weeks, I'll tell you how to stand firm. So here's what we're doing next week, Lord willing. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. This marvelous communion, which we have with a, an otherwise unapproachably holy God through the cross. So that'll be next week. Don't miss it. Special time. And then, Lord willing, the week after, We'll talk about how can we overcome the adversary. And then the week after that, Lord willing, demons. We'll talk about demons. Who are they? Where are they? What do they do? What are we supposed to do? All right. Would you bow and pray with me as we come to a close? Lord Jesus, 
wow, you are something else. We are so in love with you, so thrilled to be Christ ones. You have left us overwhelmed by your capacity to yield to the Father's will under the harshest of circumstances as we juxtapose Matthew 4, Lord Jesus, with Genesis 3. We see the human response to temptation and the gloriously divine response. Oh God, we are so affected by the failure of our forebears in Genesis 3, and we are so gloriously affected by faith in your victory over temptation in Matthew chapter 4. It is victory in Jesus, and we share in it because we're connected to you now and forevermore. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for empowering us to overcome in our relationship with you through the blood of the Lamb and through our own testimony of salvation, through you, the Savior. Lord Jesus, we do not underestimate the evil one, but we don't overestimate him either. Greater are you in us than the one who is still yet in the world. And for this, we praise you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for rescuing us from sin, from self, and from Satan. We look forward to praising you face to face one day. Until then, help us to take up our cross daily and to bear it also in perfect submission to the Father's will. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.